Thank you very much. So I want to start off with getting you guys to do a little bit of legwork. Just turn to someone nearby you, preferably someone that you don't know or someone you didn't come to church with today, and just have a quick chat. Um, what do you look for in a partner, a romantic partner? Big Valentine's Day question. Go for it. <laughs> Similar interests, yeah? Integrity. Integrity. They need to be on the Healing on the Streets team. That's a very specific one, which may not be applicable for everyone, but yeah, great. Any more? Accepting of who I am. Accepting of who you are, yeah. Love the Lord. Love the Lord, yeah, eventually we got that. Uh, um, one thing that I imagine um, most of us would not have on that list is indifference. If we are in a romantic relationship with someone, in fact, if we're in a friendship or we're in any sort of relationship with someone, we want to know that we matter. We want to know that they notice if we're not there, uh, that they care, Um, that that there's something about our relationship that that they value. Would you agree with that? So um, I was thinking about um, someone who used to be a little bit of a, a hero of mine. Um, you may recognise her, uh, Ong Sang Suki. I don't know if I've said her name completely correctly, but forgive me. Um, she, um, of, co- of course, was famous mainly for staying in. She was kept under under house arrest for about a decade in Myanmar by the uh, military junta, uh, and she was uh, a voice for the pro-democracy movement. She was like an Asian Mandela, if you like, um, who was fighting for democracy in Myanmar, um, and at great personal cost. And I remember one time hearing her talk about how, um, how she'd coped with being locked up for such a long time. She said, it's all about meditation. I just empty my mind of all desire, and I just empty my mind of all um, care or concerns, and that's how I've been able to get through all of this. And I thought, hmm, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I think that's a good idea. Um, interestingly, since then, um, she's been heavily criticised for her silence when it comes to the genocide that has been unfolding um, in Myanmar um, from the majority Burmese people against the Rohingya Muslims. People are saying, actually, it matters. You should be speaking out about this. It, you should care. So there's something about indifference that actually um, doesn't sit right with us, doesn't feel right. And that's really important as we look at the book of Hosea. So if you missed the sermon last week, um, uh, Adrian was preaching, giving us an introduction to the book of Hosea. I'm not going to repeat anything he said uh, there. So just go back and listen to it online. Uh, you, you can do that. Um, and yeah, it, it starts with this very strange kind of um, uh, call on the prophet Hosea to go and marry someone who's a prostitute um, and who will go on to be unfaithful to him as a symbol of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Um, and one thing that we find in this book is that God is not it's not the God that I think sometimes we paint him to be in the 21st century. The kind, nice, fluffy, Gandalf but on a good day kind of God who, who's just happy and nice, a little bit like Santa. In this book, God is at his most human. He's at his most vulnerable. He's at his most jealous, angry and hurt. This is the book I would argue above any other book in the Bible 
where we see God at his most human. And I think it can feel quite uncomfortable. Uh, We'll find out soon. We'll be reading huge chunks of it. Um, uh, As we we see the, the repercussions of Israel's unfaithfulness on God. God doesn't just shrug his shoulders and say, nah, whatever. He is, he's not happy. He's deeply um, involved in, in this. And he describes himself again and again um, as a scorned lover. And yet, in between these outbursts of anger, and we're going to read some of them in a moment, we get moments of tenderness and we get moments of, of questioning. God questions himself. In fact, if... If this doesn't make you feel unsettled, then I'll be quite surprised. Because as I was reading through this, I was like, wow, God, you you feel a bit more fragile than I thought you were. So let's read some. Hear the word of the Lord, a people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you saying, there is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. You make vows and break them. You steal and, and, and kill and commit adultery. There is violence everywhere, one murder after another. That is why your land is mourning and everyone is wasting away. Even the wild animals, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea are disappearing. Don't point your finger at someone else and try to pass the blame. My complaint is with you priests. So you will stumble in broad daylight and your false prophets will fall with you in the night and I will destroy Israel, your mother. When the people bring their sin offerings, the priests get fed. So the priests are glad when the people sin. And what the priests do, the people also do. So now I will punish both priests and people for their wicked deeds. They will eat and still be hungry. They will play the prostitute and yet gain nothing from it. For they have deserted the Lord to worship other gods. You're getting my point here. It's, it's pretty angry um, and there's not much mincing of words. He goes on, uh, poetic in his anger. I will destroy Israel as a moth consumes wool. I will make Judah as weak as rotten wood. I will be like a lion to Israel, like a strong young lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces. I will carry them off and no one will be left to rescue them. Isn't it great? Um, And yet in between these outbursts of anger, we get verses like, Oh, Israel, when I first found you, it was like finding fresh grapes in the desert. We're going to get through a whole load of chapters tonight, and I can't really do justice to them, but hey, take it up with whoever gave me six chapters to do. Um, So um, uh, in chapter six, we get a change of of point of view. And now we hear from Israel, there's an awakening and a recognition of, of God and a recognition of the character of God who will be faithful as reliably as spring and rains. It's really powerful. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. Now he will heal us. He has injured us. Now he will bandage up our wounds. In just a short time, he will restore us so that we may live in his presence. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of dawn or the coming of rains in early spring. It's great. There's this sense of maybe Israel is coming uh, to to his and her senses. Maybe there's going to be a turning back to the Lord. God, however is not convinced. Oh, Israel and Judah, what shall I do with you? Asks the Lord. For your love vanishes like the morning mists and disappears like dew in the night. You see, God is not interested in their words. 
He wants to see more than that. He wants their hearts. To continue the romance analogy, if I've just been cheating on someone and then I offer them flowers and chocolates, is that going to cut it? Recently, um, I was chatting to a friend of mine and really relieved to hear that he's broken up with his girlfriend. Um, he was um, in an open relationship and he described it to me because I just didn't really understand. He said, yeah, so, so my girlfriend, she's bi and, you know, she wants to still get with other girls. And, you know, I'm sort of all right with that. You know, she's in a club, she meets someone. And, um, it, but it's harder, like, when she wants to get with other guys. And, like, you know, I, I've got the same rights as she does, but I don't want anyone else. I just want her. And it, it didn't sit comfortably with me at all. And I thought, but, mate, you're, you're just worth so much more than that. Like, why are you settling for this? And he said, well, you know, everyone's cheating on everyone else. At least we're being honest. At least we're, at least we're acknowledging that it happens. And we've, we've, created, we've created some sort of bound, boundaries around that. I want more. And I believe the Lord does too. In chapter 7, God continues with his grievance against Israel and how they chase after foreign gods and foreign powers. But now he's built up a full head of steam and he goes on a full-blown rant. The people of Israel have become like silly, witless doves, first calling to, to Egypt, then flying to Assyria for help. I want to redeem them, but they have told lies about me. They do not cry out to me with sincere hearts. Instead, they sit on their couches and wail. They cut themselves, begging foreign gods for grain and new wine, and they turn away from me. They look everywhere except the Most High, and they're as useless as a crooked bow. It goes on by chapter 8, we get the repercussions of Israel's sin. They're like, they have planted the wind and will harvest the whirlwind. The stalks of grain wither and produce nothing to eat. And even if there is any grain, foreigners will eat it. So there's this principle of um, reaping what you sow. In fact, uh, this has gone into popular um, language usage in the English language. This idea that you reap, that you sow the wind and you reap the whirlwind. Chapter 9, they have planted the wind and will harvest the whirlwind. The stalks of grain wither and produce nothing to eat. And even if there is any grain, foreigners will eat it. Nettles will take over your treasures of silver. Thistles will invade your ruined homes. My God will reject the people of Israel because they will not listen or obey. They will be wanderers, homeless among the nations. And so on it goes. It's quite a tirade, and every now and then it's punctuated by echoes of the past and the love that's been spurned. So in chapter 10 we get, Israel is like a trained heifer treading out the grain, an easy job she loves, but I will put a heavy yoke on her tender neck. I will force Judah to pull the plough and Israel to break up the hard ground. I said, plant the good seeds of righteousness and you will harvest a crop of love. Plough up the hard ground of your hearts. For now is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and shower righteousness upon you. God remembers what he told Israel in the past. And he's willing to grant blessing. As we read through this, we see he's beginning to work out his grief and his anger and his grievance. And as he gets some of that out of his system, God begins to remember and to relent. He remembers why he loves Israel and he remembers who he is. It's almost like the fire is finally burning itself out. Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? 
How can I destroy you like Adma or demolish you like Zebulim? My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel, for I am God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you, and I will not come to destroy, for someday the people will follow me. I don't know about you, but I feel a slight sense of awkwardness in all of this. Um, a little bit like you get when a couple have an argument in your presence. Like, why do I need to hear this? And uh, shouldn't God be better at anger management? Or actually, does this show that God cares and that he can be hurt, that he can get angry at betrayal? He isn't just some serene garden center Buddha. He's intimately connected with us. He cares. We've also learned what God does not want. Sorry, let me whiz through some of these slides I forgot to go on. Um, no, that was the argument. I don't want your sacrifice. I want your love. I don't want your offerings. I want you to know me. What does he want? He wants what we all want. He wants to be known and he wants to be loved. He wants to be known and he wants to be loved. So what does this love look like? Uh, I'm guessing some of you Christians are familiar with uh, the five languages of love. Have any of you heard of that? It's a well-worn trope for many of you, but it might not be familiar to everybody. So uh, let's just see. Who can name uh, one of the languages? Acts of service. So acts, so acts of service is, is one of the gifts. So typically it's like, um, uh, you know, don't turn up with these lovely words of yours or a big, a, a, a big bouquet of flowers. Like, I'm still waiting for you to fix the sink. Um, uh, I love the quote, um, women, why do you keep nagging men? Don't you know when we say we'll do something, we'll do it. And we don't need you reminding us every six months. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, so yeah, acts of service. What's the second one? Words of encouragement, words of encouragement or words of affirmation. Yeah. There's an, an old story that, um, a couple got married and on the wedding day, uh, the husband said to the wife, I love you. Fast forward 60 years and uh, the husband was um, on his deathbed and his wife just said, why is it that you only ever said that you loved me once? Why did you never tell me again? And he said, well, if anything had changed, I would have let you know. <laughs> and then he died. Good. I mean, quite frankly, like, that is not a great way to go into a relationship. Like, uh, we need to be reminded of truths. You know, we, we are forgetful when it comes to affirmation. So, uh, yeah, words of affirmation, words of encouragement are really important. And I think they're quite difficult in our culture. Um, you can try this out on, an, on a real live English person if you find one. Um, but ju just, just pay them a compliment. Just, just say something like, oh, do you know what, Claire? I really like that scarf. It really suits you. And, and often what they'll do is, is say, oh, oh, I got it in a charity shop. Or, or, oh, it was really cheap. It's basically like, oh, get it off me. There's a compliment. I don't know what to do with it. English people are terrible at receiving compliments. And here's the thing. What's happening is I'm giving and you're just going like this and it's falling on the ground. Um, so I want to challenge you, actually, if your natural, natural posture is to deflect a compliment, how about you take it? Just say thanks. You don't have to give one back. Uh, uh, in fact, I would encourage you not to. Like, find another time to do that so it doesn't just feel like you're trying to even the scales. Um, yeah, what's the third one? 
Gifts, ankle, okay, um, so we'll start with, with gifts. Yeah, so some people just really love uh, to, give, to give gifts and, uh, and, and they put so much thought and effort into it and they, um, the people who are best at this give you something you didn't even know that you wanted. And you're like, oh, this is really nice. Um, there are one or two people in this church actually who have really blessed me in their in, insightfulness um, in the gifts that they've given. Um, so yeah, that's a really good one. And then if, uh, another one that was mentioned then was quality time. Um, you know, it's you can turn up with all the nice words and the flowers and so on, um, but if you're like two hours late for the date, it's not going to go well for you. Um, so quality time is really important. I remember uh, the guy who's nearest to a big brother f- to me, he was, he was the one that told me about these five languages. And his son at the time was about two or maybe three. Um, and when you were taught to him, if you looked away, he would like move your head back. He had to have you engaged because he was such a quality time kind of guy, um, even at that young age. So, uh, yeah. Have we done all of them? Oh, we're missing, what are we missing? Touch, yeah. So touch is the other one, um, and uh, obviously that needs to be appropriate. Um, <coughs> uh, but um, some, sometimes what people really need is, you know, sometimes words aren't enough. They just need you to sit with them, maybe put an arm around their shoulder. Uh, always good to check first. Um, and uh, 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 and it's interesting when we go through uh, the New Testament again and again. The way that Jesus heals is through touch. So often he, 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 and he particularly seems to, to, to reach out to touch those who are considered to be untouchable. Those who no one else would touch. Those for whom actually within the Jewish law it would, be, it would make them ceremonially unclean. And yet he's willing to touch. So um, those are the five different uh, languages of love. And yet how, how can they work for, um, for us and how, uh, when it comes to God? And how did they work for Israel when it came to God? Um, well, I think they were quite good at giving gifts, mainly sheep, sometimes the odd goat. So they were really into their sacrifices. They kind of thought, you know, like, it doesn't really matter what we do the rest of the time, but as long as we're sacrificing a lot, that will be okay. And again and again, throughout this, um, these, these, this chunk of Hosea, we're told, no, like, God is not interested. I'm not interested in your sacrifices. I'm interested in you. That's what I want. Touch doesn't seem to feature so much here. They're good at words. Oh, we're going to return to the Lord. Come on, let's do that. But um, it doesn't seem to happen very much. In fact, the two things that seem to really be missing are actions, acts of service, and um, quality time. Jesus made it clear that if we love God, if we say we love God, then we'll obey his commands. We'll walk out our talk. We'll practice what we preach. Another word for that is faithfulness. And um, I'm just going to sort of uh, recycle some of the stuff that I uh, preached fairly recently in one of the morning services um, about this. What does faithfulness look like? Well, first of all, faithfulness is hard. Talk to some of the people here who've been married to the same person for a couple of decades. And they'll say it's good, but it's hard. It's hard. Yet sometimes the grass does seem greener. I think there's, it's very rare to find someone who's never had a wandering eye or never, never just entertained the, oh, I wonder, what if, and speculated if they were with someone else or what that might, might be like. The reality is that, you know, there comes a point where you do know the other person really well. You know what they're going to say before they say it. And yet we're called to be faithful. 
I think a way of describing that would be through um, a story. Um, Shoulder the boulder. So one day, Jesus comes up to a man and he says, "Um, are you willing to do what I ask? And the man says, yes. And, And then Jesus says, you see this big boulder here? I want you to put your shoulder to it. And I want you to to do that until I come back. Can you do that? And the man says, yes. And then Jesus goes. So the man puts his shoulder to the boulder and he pushes as hard as he can. And the boulder doesn't move a bit. Then he tries putting his back into it. That doesn't work. Then he pushes forward and that doesn't work. Um, But he keeps on trying. Um, Minute after minute, hour after hour. And that night... He, um, he goes to bed feeling pretty dejected, his, his muscles absolutely screaming in agony. Uh, and then the next day he goes back to it again. He's pushing, he's, he's heaving, he's trying every single technique he can. Uh, and he can see, like, if he could just get that boulder tipped over, it, it, would, it would start to like, roll down the hill. It, w- it would be really spectacular. But he just can't seem to have en- enough energy to make it move. But he keeps trying and he tries day after day. And, and he tries week after week. And then it gets to the point where he's trying month after month and nothing is happening. And finally, in absolute despondency, he just collapses in a heap and just shouts out to, to Jesus, why have you set me up to fail? I'm never going to be able to move this boulder. You must be a really awful, awful person to even, like, what? Uh, I hate you, I'm done. Throws so, so a bit of a hissy fit. And then Jesus turns up and Jesus, uh, and, and Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. And the man's like, why? Why are you saying that to me? I look, the boulder is exactly where it was when you, when you left me. And Jesus says, what, this boulder? And he just touches it lightly with his finger and the, the boulder goes rolling down the hill. And the man's like, yeah, see? Like, why did you set me up to fail? And Jesus said, it's, it's not about the boulder. It's not about the boulder. That, that was, it was never about that. It was about you being faithful to me. And then Jesus says, look, you know, take off your top. And the guy's like, okay, a bit weird. Um, look at those muscles. You didn't have them before. That's what, I wanted to grow that in you. You wouldn't have had that if you hadn't been faithful every day, week in, week out, to do what I asked you to do. It wasn't about the boulder. And so often, I think, we, we expect... Uh, God to be a little bit like the father of uh, Veruca Salt. He should just give us everything we want. I want my golden ticket. But daddy, I must have a pony. Uh, we, ex- we expect God to be like that. And, and yet, who wants to be like Veruca Salt? Um, if any of you haven't seen Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, it's worth a watch. Um, we somehow hold God to a really, really bad standard of parenting that we would, we would never want um, uh, people to, to, to practice here on earth. You know, we want him to be the, sort of the genie and the tooth fairy and Santa all wrapped into one. And just, just oh, here's what I want, and I want it now. And one of the best things I think that God can do for us sometimes is, is, is just to use the word no. But I want this. No. And it comes down to, do I trust him? Do I actually trust him to give me what I need? I think one of the areas where we see the biggest divergence, and it's one of the biggest issues for the church today, um, is in the whole area of sexuality. 
20, 30 years ago, um, generally speaking, society and the church held more or less the same morals, more or less. Uh, most people in the street would say, yeah, I mean, okay, we all kind of like to play the field a bit, but generally speaking, it's probably good to be faithful to the person that we're with. Um, I, I think I think we'll just watch Love Island, but I think that's maybe changed. But the other area that it's really changed is is um, is, is in the whole area of, of the, the approach to the whole LGBTQ plus question. Um, I read this book in the summer uh, by David Bennett. So he is an LGBTQ, have I missed a letter? Um, advocate. Um, he was very involved in, in, in campaigning for gay rights. Um, uh, he's an Australian. And then um, he, he went to a, an amazing church, I think it was Hillsong, um, and experienced the Holy Spirit and became a Christian. So he then was campaigning for gay rights within the church, particularly marriage equality. You know, he was saying, we just need to join the rest of society. The church has been uh, uh, an instrument of oppression for too long. Now, finally, like we need to actually see marriage equality take place. And, you know, had a boy, a Christian boyfriend. It was all going well for him. Um, and yet, as he started to read the Bible more and more, as he started to look at the cultural context in which the New Testament was written, uh, a, a culture which was far more permissive and far less vanilla than our, our own culture today, and yet within that context, reading what Paul was saying, he started to realize, I might have to give this up. And that was the conclusion that he reached. He reached a point where, where he said, actually, like, I think I'm going to have to be celibate. I think I'm going to have to break up with, with this guy. And, and that's, that wasn't just costly once. It continues to be costly day after day. I can imagine Valentine's Day doesn't help. And I can really relate to this. I mean, this is partly my story. I, I prefer guys. I didn't, I didn't sign up for that, didn't choose that. That's just my preference. And, um, and I think I'm, a, I'm quite a good catch. And like, I'd love to be with someone right now. Um, but at the same time, when I read what, what, what Jesus says, Jesus is not afraid to challenge Old Testament laws. He's not afraid to say, you've heard it say this, but I say to you. And yet he never says that when it comes to the whole issue of uh, homosexual practice. And Paul, as I said, is talking in a culture where um, things were much more permissive than they are today. And yet he still says what he says. So I'm trying to be faithful and I find it really hard. So I, I'm just being honest with you. And, um, uh, and nor do I think I'm alone. Um, uh, according to statistics, um, there are two women for every man in the church. And if you talk about single women, it, there are uh, to single men, it's a three to one imbalance. And as I've said before, I'm not helping things. Um, but um, uh, my friend Annabelle really is. So Annabelle, she's a good mate of mine. Uh, she's a woman in her 40s. She's a great cat. She's got everything going for her. Uh, you think that she'd be, she, she'd be with someone, and she's not. And she started to do some of the statistical research, and she realized, actually, this really sucks. Like, for uh, at least half the, the single women in the church, we've got the option of either being single, even if we don't want to be, or being with someone who doesn't share our values, who doesn't have the same compass. And, like, those aren't great options. So she started up um, something called Engage, which is campaigning, putting Christian leaders' feet to the fire and saying, you know, we're not shouting as loudly as the sort of LGBTQ+, but, like, we need to be heard because we're quietly going on antidepressants. We're quietly um, leaving the church. 
we're quietly um, feeling un- unheard and, and uncared for uh, and, and circling the drain. But what she's also done is, is partnered up with Christian Ministry for Men, saying, okay, the problem is we need to get more men into church. So they're doing some really positive things as well. So there are a lot of people, um, and those are just two, two examples. There are a lot of people who are seeking to be faithful. And faithfulness is not always easy. And we could leave it there. We could leave it on a bit of a sort of dour note, you know, follow Jesus and you will be miserable, but at least you'll go to heaven. I, I, don't, I don't think that's all that there is out there for us. And again, I want to say that, um, as we saw in the book of Hosea, uh, God is not just after sacrifice. He wants us. He wants to know us. He, he, wants, he wants to enjoy us. And, and so we, we've talked about, like, we've got to walk the talk. Actions are really important, but so is quality time. How much time are you spending with God? Um, some, I've sometimes thought that if I ever did get married, um, I could imagine on my side of the church, there would just be a whole bank of computers with Skype because I've got just so many friends who live around the world. And, and often I just don't get to see them very much. Like one of my best mates, if I'm lucky... We see each other maybe once a year. And that's just about enough to keep the friendship ticking over. But it isn't really enough. Like it, it's enough to have a proper catch-up, but not to kind of go beyond that. And actually, you need time. You need time for that. How much time are you spending with the Lord? I don't just mean here. I mean in your day-to-day life. How integrated is he? Is he just a compartmentalized little section of your life that kind of uh, you feel you're doing him a favor if you turn up on a, on a Sunday? Or, or is he the first thing and the last thing, you know, when you wake up, when you go to bed? Is he there in your day and not just when you need a parking space? Spending time with the Lord is really important. I'm just going to give you another um, minute um, to talk to someone next to you. Just quickly um, discuss how do you spend time with the Lord? What are some of the things that you do? You do ways in which you try and integrate God into Monday and Tuesday and the other days of the week. Anyone? Stillness and silence. So, so silence... In an intentional way, not just like when you're asleep, but actually, um, yeah, yeah, really, really just being silent for a little great. What else? Talk to him in the car. Yeah, a lot. Okay, great. Yeah, that can be a really good place to do that. I, I've ha- I have had people on the tube get their praise on. They've been listening and they've, and they've been participating and it's been, it's been special. Um, yeah, well... Any, any more? Sorry, over there? Oh, it's been special, yes. Uh, sorry, what was that? Worship music, yeah. So probably again in your car. In the car, Yeah. Great. Did it, can all of you hear that? Yeah, that's brilliant. Okay, so Rena has, has actually created a sort of... Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Traffic like worship. I love that. Um, yeah, what else? Audible Bible app. Yep. Why is that good? Because 
Yeah. So you ha- so you can be doing the housework, but you can also be listening to this at the same time. Brilliant. Yeah. Excellent. What else? Yeah. Listen to some bee sermons when you when she's in the bath. Not quite sure how I feel about that, but yeah, great. Um, okay. Um, what else? Sorry. Running and cycling. And, and how does that fit with spending time with God? So going for an intentional run with Jesus. Yeah. I like that. Great. Anything else? Yeah. On your, on your walk to work? So a prayer walk and just spending time with God. Yeah, brilliant. Walking in nature, yeah, I think that can be a really restorative one. There's something about just seeing God's creation that helps us worship the Creator. Any more? So constant conversation, everything in the day. There's always just like a bit of chat backwards and forwards. Yeah, I mean, some other obvious ones. Are, um, one of the things that I found is is especially when we live busy lives, is, is you need to diarise. Like even, even the most kind of in love couples in the world usually eventually end up having to have date nights because otherwise they just don't get a chance to see each other. Yeah? Um, and in, in the same way, um, sometimes it's easier with, with some friendships to have some kind of regular routine. So like I have a regular routine every week. Um, I meet up usually on the phone with my prayer partner so we can have a chat and we never pray. And I think in the same way, getting into a routine of um, reading your Bible at some point during the day, whether that's the morning or the evening, spending a bit of time in prayer and trying to maybe make it the same time each day means that it's more likely to happen. So, uh, yeah, those are all great ideas. So I'm going to finish in a moment, but I want to say this. Faith is about doing. We're told, you know, um, your faith without works is, isn't real faith. Uh, you, you get that in the book of James. But it's also about being. It's also about quality time. It's all, also about receiving, let it, allowing God the space to speak to us, just giving him that bandwidth, letting him change us, letting him challenge us, letting him pick us up when we fall, helping us to dust ourselves off, And trying again to be faithful, trying to finish well. So how are you going to approach this next week differently? What does faithfulness look like for you in your context? Is there something that you you find hard? Like, actually, I don't really enjoy having to do this or or do that, but I do think it's right. Is there a way that you can do that with maybe a slightly lighter heart? Make a decision now. And maybe after the service, you might even want to tell someone about it just so that you're uh, kind of kept, kept accountable. I'm going to pray. God, you are jealous for us. You're not indifferent. You don't shrug your shoulders if we just go off. You notice us when we're missing. Some bees doesn't. We're a big church. If someone wants to just 
toss the hair and head out the door, we just kind of get on with things. But you notice and you care. You don't just want um, empty words. You don't just want some sort of ritual. You want, you want us to know you and you want us to love you. You're not impervious to pain. We are able to inflict pain on the omnipotent deity of the universe. I find that really hard to get my head around. That gives me power. And I want to use that power well and wisely and not misuse it. So would you help us, Lord, to be faithful to you? Faithful to your commands? Faithful to you in the way that we spend our time, our money, the things that we go chasing after? Would there be something that makes it clear to those people around us and not just some trite little badge that we're followers of Jesus. I pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.